I'm excited about um, our continu continuing lessons here in Isaiah 36 to 39. I look forward to it. <clears throat> and the time has really gone well, a couple minutes before 9. So I'm sure that what we'll be able to do is once I get through this passage, uh, actually have some time um, just for some questions from you because it'll be a couple of weeks. I'll be gone um, some travel the next two weeks, leave Tuesday for three cities on the East Coast, come back, um, classes, teach classes Thursday, go up to Alberta, Canada. And I think I mentioned that to you before. Great opportunity up there next that next weekend, but back again. And, uh, and then, lo and behold, just after that is going to be our retreat. And hopefully everyone has signed up for that. Um, so we're going to have some questions after this time because we're a bit ahead of schedule, which is great. And why don't we just go to the Lord and we'll look to Isaiah 36. Lord, thank you for your mercies, <clears throat> which are new every day. We praise you for who you are. And we just ask in the moments ahead that you might use your word. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. So, uh, Isaiah 36 to 39, we have entitled this series, The Trustworthiness of God. And this is part three. Our focus, as you can see, is going to be in verses 4 through 10 in Isaiah 36. And, and my initial thoughts, let me say this. Sometimes we ask if theology and even historical narratives are relevant for life. Uh, one may ask if studying an event that took place nearly 2,700 years ago has any import for today. I mean, how does knowing dates and words and sequences of events in a land literally thousands of miles away uh, that occurred nearly 3,000 years ago helped me with modern challenges, doubts, fears, and the needs of today here in 2019. I mean, how can a pagan king's arrogance, uh, a sinful nation's inconsistency, and divine intervention in a seemingly just impossible situation have relevance for my life? I mean, the last phrase is really the most important one, divine intervention. And divine intervention is the anchor of life. And what we're going to see in this story as it continues to unfold is God divinely intervening in a situation where human resources, ability, wisdom um, will not prevail. And when we think about divine intervention, I might say this, without it, um, you cannot accomplish anything worth achieving. However, by divine intervention, by God's grace, by God's help, you can accomplish things that have really eternal implications. This is a narrative of trust. And to trust God is the foundation of our faith. I think we would all agree with that. You must agree with that. Because to not believe God means that we have no relationship to God we have no faith in God, then we cannot possibly please God 
we cannot relate to God, be a child of God. You can either trust in yourselves or something else or someone else for the resources of life. But of course, I think we'd all say you want to trust in the Lord because with him is life, with him is satisfaction in life, and with God is the purpose for life. I mean, this ancient story in Isaiah 36 to 39 reminds us that to trust in God is not an option. That is, to trust in God is not an option if you want to please him, have his protection, and then overall, the overarching purpose in life is to proclaim his glory to those who are examining your life as to its source and its strength. And said a different way is that people are, are observing how you live life, how you make choices in life. And they're looking to you and saying, where is your foundation? What is your hope? And as you make your life decisions, you are making a proclamation. And that proclamation either will be, I trust self, I trust resources, I trust something else or someone else. Or your life decisions will proclaim, as Israel was to proclaim, that God is trustworthy. Trust him. Believe him. Bow to him. Stand in awe of him. Be saved by him. Every day... Our lives are making a statement how much we trust the Lord. This morning, our lives made a statement how much we trust the Lord. Tomorrow, we will make a statement. This is how much I trust the Lord. And uh, if we were to go around this room, everyone would have some narrative of their own life, would you not? And that narrative would declare whether it be in this chapter of life or a future chapter of life, or a past chapter of life, this is how I have trusted the Lord. Here have been my trials and tribulations and difficulties, and I have decided to proclaim by my actions, by my responses to this God, God is a trustworthy God. That's simply how life works. So a question comes up to us, and we say, well, what are the lessons we can learn from this passage? Well, it's obvious by even the title itself, God is trustworthy. Why? Because he is incapable of being otherwise. We have to ingrain that into our mind. God is trustworthy because he is incapable of being otherwise. For God to be um, unreliable is not an option because God is perfect in all of his attributes. And one such perfect attribute is faithfulness. Question for you. Do you believe that God is faithful? What's your response? Yes. Okay. God is trustworthy because he is a God who initiates and keeps his promises. Question, do you believe that God keeps his promises? What would you say? Yes. God is trustworthy because God is sinless. Therefore, he cannot act with impure motives. And God binds himself by himself to act in accord with his perfectly sinless nature. Question, do you believe that God is sinless? Absolutely, you must. And therefore, you must also believe that God will never act inconsistently with himself, who is God, a God that is faithful, who is God, a God that keeps his promises, who is God, a God where it's impossible to lie, who is God, an all-powerful God, 
who is God, an all-wise God. So we must believe then that this God is, in fact, a trustworthy God. He has bound himself by himself to only be what he can be, which is a perfectly holy God. And that perfectly holy God is one to be trusted. Now, what has happened today often in Christian circles is, well, we say, indeed, that's right, God has bound himself by himself, and some think that God has bound himself to give you all the blessings that the world has to offer. No, he has not. And some would say, yes, we, I believe that. There are promises in the Bible, and those promises in the Bible is that I'd not face any difficulty or heartache and pain. And I just wondered, then what Bible are you reading? It is not the one that's in front of me. What translation is that? And it's not even a translation. It's obviously, it's something that's much deeper and even sadder. It's a misguided, worldly interpretation of God's word that says, I will uh, make God other than what he is. So I've spent some time developing this idea. This is our third lesson about the trustworthiness of God, and we have many more to go. We're going to make it all the way through chapter 39, but we're going to notice even this morning in verses 4 through 10, we see this Syrian field commander, Rabshakeh. He comes in his first of two speeches, and what does he do? He assaults the Judeans' confidence in the leadership of Hezekiah and the ability of God. It's an assault on trust. It's an assault on the trustworthiness of God. It's an assault on the leadership under whom they follow. And, amen. (laughs) She gets the point. Wow. All right. Bring her every Sunday. Encourage a preacher. Oh, no. See, she knew that. Don't you? It wasn't supposed to work that way. You're supposed to say that cute thing again. You must agree what? That this ancient narrative is not unlike the challenges you face today. It really isn't. Like Rapshakeh, the world in our flesh, in varying ways, various ways, it, it is relentless in doing what? Assaulting your trust in God. The field commander comes, and what is he doing in his first speech and the second speech? He is assaulting trust. Do not believe, do not believe, do not believe, do not rely. Now, I'll let you know this, that there's certain times in his assault, it was true. They should not have trusted in certain elements. But ultimately, when he assaults them and says, don't trust in Hezekiah, and then don't trust in God, now he's gone too far. And so just like a field commander for the Assyrians, the world and our flesh is assaulting our trust in God every day. So this narrative, though it took place 2,700 years ago and thousands of miles away, is very relevant for your life. It is. And we would all agree that in some measure, our flesh, the world, wants us to deny God and to rely on anything else, including self, instead of what? Let's not rely on God. Let's not rely on his resources. Let's not rely on his power and his wisdom and his direction. Look elsewhere for your trust. I mean, we may not be surrounded by Assyrians right now, but we are by different ideologies that oppose our faith. 
We are surrounded by persons who oppose our faith. And then, as Paul would tell us in the book of Ephesians, spiritual powers that oppose our faith. And they want us to trust anything but the living God. I mean, notice the text itself, this idea of trust. Verse 4, chapter 36, Isaiah, then Rapshikah said to them, See now, say now to Hezekiah, thus says the great king of Assyria, what is this? confidence that you have. And actually, and we'll go to this in a moment and unfold it, but he really is saying, what is this confidence that you trust? Verse five, now whom do you rely or do you trust? Behold, you rely on Egypt or you trust in Egypt. But verse seven, but if you say to me, we trust in the Lord, our God. And then in verse nine, it says, why are you relying on Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Then it comes up again in verse 15. We won't get there this morning, but notice again, nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying the Lord will deliver. Don't trust him. It's a matter of trust. Every day is a life of trust. We wake up in the morning and we trust. I woke up early this morning and the first thing I said, Lord, I trust you that I can teach the word of God today and it be clear and that people will be helped. I, I trust you in that. And I didn't trust the Lord without a manuscript. Do you understand? I didn't trust the Lord without having studied this week. And I didn't trust the Lord without reading. I didn't trust the Lord without going back and making some edits and, and asking questions of the text. And, and I didn't trust the Lord without looking and said, that's a very interesting translation. Why does the NASB have it this way and the ESV this way and the NIV this way? Let's look and see what's in the text itself. So what, make sure we understand that we can trust the Lord, but this is not a blind trust. It is a faithful trust. It's a trust of stewardship as well. I can't wake up in the morning and say, okay, Lord, I trust you. What am I going to say today? I trust you. I put in the work, and, and even the work that I put in, I still absolutely must trust you because I can't ultimately even depend on all this work. Do you understand that? I don't come here saying, well, I have this manuscript in front of me. Everything will go well. No, not at all. Because something has to happen in your heart and your minds. And even if I go through the text and, it, and it's explained in a decent manner, it doesn't mean that you'll get it. There are people that you can preach the gospel to those people and you can counter their arguments and you can help them understand scripture and they can still walk away and say, I don't want to trust God. We all know that to be the case, right? Which is probably most likely the case for everyone in this room because I know few people who the first time they came to the Lord or the first time they heard the gospel, they came to the Lord. And some of you at some point in time, someone shared truth with you and a gospel truth. And you said, I don't want to trust the Lord. And the only thing that changed it was the spirit of God. And so, yes, we work, but at the same time, we must trust. So this morning, I want us to learn from these four areas that trust is assaulted. There are going to be four ways we're going to break down this speech from the field commander of the Assyrians and learn lessons in how even the world and our flesh will attack us as well. And I'm, as always, praying, as every preacher should hope and pray, that as you walk away from here, you will have a greater trust in the Lord. 
So we're going to look at these four areas that trust is assaulted so that we can really be better prepared for the attacks of the world and the flesh. And so as we move ahead, a quick review, we already noticed the character of those who rest in a trustworthy God. We saw that in Hezekiah as we went um, and looked at 2 Kings 18, 1 to 6, and we noticed that Hezekiah had reformed for God. We realized that he had trusted God. We realized that he had clung to the Lord and to cling to the Lord, as the ESV says, he, hold, he held fast to God. Or the Net Bible says he was loyal to God. There's also the sense of the confidence offered by a trustworthy God, which was we saw in verse 7, this sense, yes, we can have a confidence because we know that God is with us in fighting for us. And then it brings us to this third consideration, which is going to help us see these four assaults, the trials of those who rest in a trustworthy God. Yes, these are God's covenant people, but they are facing a trial. And we know that a part of the reason they're facing the trial because they brought it upon themselves because of their inconsistent representation of God. And it seems like they're more consistent sinful patterns in their life. So, the assault on trust. What's the first assault that we can notice? And it's this, number one, <clears throat> in the rapture speech, as he begins, it is this, don't trust in strategy that cannot help you. And this is what he's saying, don't trust in a strategy that cannot help you. And this is really verses four and five. Let me read them. Then rapture said to them, say now to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, what is this confidence that you have? I say, your counsel and strength for war are only empty words. Now, on whom do you rely that you have rebelled against me? So now the field commander takes the stage. He is making this statement to the people of God. The greatest Syrian army, as we saw in verses 1 to 3, now they would come and they want to lay siege to Zion, if you will. And his speech is very interesting. Notice something as well. He says, this comes from, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria. And you'll notice the use of king throughout the passage. We won't go through all the references now. Is that, as the Rapshika refers to uh, Shennacherib, the king of Assyria, he referred to him as the king, the great king has said. But he never refers to Hezekiah as king. He just simply says Hezekiah. He never says, let King Hezekiah defraud you or deceive you. No, he never refers to him as king. He doesn't even recognize his kingship. And what he's saying, there is but one great king, and that great king is the king of Assyria. Now, from a human standpoint, that was absolutely true. But we know what is interesting here is that the tension is building right there in the statement in that, what Sennacherib doesn't know, what the Rapshika does not realize is this. He is fighting not only against Hezekiah, but he is ultimately fighting against the king of kings and lord of lords. Amen? So granted, you may be the great king of Assyria, but you are truly not the king of kings. His name is in this city. And then if we notice, just trust in the verse itself. Notice verse 4. Verse 4 he says, <clears throat> what is this confidence that you have? 
And so the NASB says confidence that you have. And what's interesting in, the, uh, in that wording, so he goes from a noun, he says, what is this confidence? Then he goes to this verbal idea that you have. But actually, if you look at the text, and this is why actually the ESV is better, a better translation here, uh, because the ESV says this in verse 4, and the rapture said to them, say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, uh, the king of Assyria, on what do you rest this trust of yours? And actually, perhaps a, a better way to actually translate it would be this, and I would have liked that the, the Nazbi would have said this, what is this confidence that you trust? And that's exactly what he's saying. So you have this sense of confidence, but on what basis is it? Why are you trusting in this confidence that you have? So it's an assault on this confidence. Now, we pause for a moment. Okay, what is trust? I mean, the whole series, in one sense, is based on this. What is trust? We can say that trust is defined as a, a sense of confidence, of course. It's, it's faith, it's hope in something or someone and that something or someone is obviously going to have resources and power beyond us because the question would be then why would we trust them if they're equal to us, if you will? Some would say that simply the idea that every morning we have a sense of trust because we believe, we trust that the sun is going to rise in the morning and we trust that we'll see the sunset in the evening. And if you just go to some of our basic dictionaries, it would say this. What is trust? A sure reliance on the character, ability, strength, or truth of something or someone. So character, ability, strength, or truth. With God, his character. With God, his ability. With God, his strength. With God, the truth to which he speaks. This will go on to say, and this is just Merriam Webster, one in which confidence is placed. They might say this, dependence on something future are contingent. So now it's the idea of hope. So I have a sense of hope because I look to the future and it's based on someone that is trustworthy. As well, this is a part of the definition that's given. Reliance on future payment for property, such as merchandise delivered, or it's a credit. And they even give this illustration of credit uh, that we, we bought furniture on a trust. We don't really do that anymore. Um, back in, was it too long ago, really? But I still remember the days when I'd go to the store and my dad would put a down payment on something uh, and we put it on hold. There was another word for it. What was the word for it? Layaway, that was it. Wow, I'm not as old as I thought. Not as old as I thought. And we go to a place called Montgomery Ward, right? And we go to J.C. Penney and we go to Sears, right? And there was one little booth that was called the layaway section. And you kind of look in the back and you'd see it back there. It'd be, sometimes it would be on a rack somewhere. And you come this week and put down $20 and you put down $50 or whatever it was until it was what? Paid off. Nowadays you do what? Here, pow, there is it. American Express Visa. Don't go anywhere without it, right? But in one sense, that's still a trust because the bank is trusting you to do what? pay it back. And when you're in layaway, you put down the money. And what it was saying is that, okay, I trust that you're going to have my property there when I paid it off. Trust, reliability. 
This is a part of our life. It happens every day. Dependence. And what he is attacking is, what's this confidence that you have? Why are you trusting in this confidence? Is it viable? Is it reasonable? Is it sensible? Will it deliver you? But then we ask ourselves a question, what about trust in Isaiah? Trust in Isaiah. Uh, the idea of trust, and for really Genesis through Kings, is uh, we don't see it as much, this word for trust. But there are 17 instances of it in Isaiah outside of 36 to 39. So 17 examples throughout Isaiah outside of 36 to 39. We obviously see a concentration of them right here just in chapter 36. And they're divided into four categories. Let me give them to you as we talk about trust in Isaiah. First, it was this. When we look at trust in Isaiah, it was a criticism of relying on military strength. God says, don't trust in military strength. Trust me instead. I am the Lord of hosts. I am the Lord of armies. Why would you trust in anyone else? Um, Look with me. Isaiah chapter 30. So first use of, by way of a category of trust in Isaiah, is a criticism for relying on military strength. Isaiah 30, verse 15. And it says, For thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel has said, In repentance and rest you will be saved, or repentance and trust you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you were not willing... They were unwilling, and what did they do instead? Notice verse 16, and you said, no, for we will flee on horses. Therefore, you shall flee, and we will ride on swift horses. Therefore, those who pursue you shall be swift. One thousand will flee at the threat of one man. You will flee at the threat of five until you are left as a flag on a mountaintop and a signal on a hill. Why? Because you decided not to trust to me. You just said, I will rely on horses. And now, that's interesting. It's going to unfold even in the Rapticus speech. And he says later on, you guys are so depleted. I'll give you 2,000 horses if you have even enough men to put on them, but you ultimately don't. And what is being communicated here in chapter 30? Because Israel, instead of trusting God, they would trust the Egyptians, and they would look to the Egyptians for horses and for chariots, thinking, we're going to flee on horses. And it says, you will flee because ultimately the Assyrians are going to come, and they're going to wipe you out. But it won't won't be in the way that you think. So God's word is, is being fulfilled right here. Look at chapter 31. As already alluded to it, chapter 31, verse 1. And he says, here's an indictment. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But they do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord. So God indicts them. I'm the Holy One in your midst, this great, unique, and singular God. 
and you would indeed go to Egypt because there are many chariots. And we know that the Egyptians had a reputation for their chariots and for their horsemen. And, and interesting enough, even horses in um, Israeli warfare wasn't as conducive if, as it would have been for the Egyptians. And it says, why would you go to them? Instead of me, the Holy One of Israel, I indict you in this. I criticize you for your misguided trust. So we pause for a moment and say, well, wait a minute. This is a, a land um, thousands of miles away. This event occurred nearly 3,000 years ago. Horses and chariots and, and Egyptians and Syrians um, and Ephraim and now the Assyrians. What does this have to do with me? What does this criticism have to do with me? Question for you. Do you ever trust anything other than God? Do you ever trust in other resources instead of God? Is it your first recourse when you find yourself in a situation that requires intervention that you first go to God and you always go to God? Now, of course, when we mature, I think when we do mature, that becomes the first course. It is the first thought. It is our first place to lean. It is our first place to rely. But I'm not sure if we're always perfect in going to him first. I mean, you want to be. <laughs> we desire to be, but that's not always the case. To go to him first, and this is what God says. So it's a criticism. Um, here's a second example of it. I'm going to skip one of them and come back to it at another time, I think. Here's another example of trust in Isaiah. Um, other instances in chapters 31 to 35 are in these songs of deliverance. That is, trust in Yahweh for peace. Go with me to Isaiah chapter 12. So in the songs of deliverance, what is being communicated in Isaiah, you should just trust in the Lord. The nations God is indicting throughout chapters 1 through 35. And it's a statement that I am absolutely sovereign over every nation. None can thwart my divine plans. And then he says in the midst of it, trust in the Lord. So we see these songs of deliverance. Um, chapter 12, verse 2, it says, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be, what does it say? Afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Therefore, you will joyfully draw water from the springs of salvation. And in that day, you will say, give thanks to the Lord, call on his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, make them remember his name is exalted. Praise the Lord in song, for he has done what sort of things has he done? Say it. Excellent things. Let this be known through the earth. Cry aloud and shout for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in the midst is the Holy One of Israel. And what you must notice is in verse 6, he says, for great in your midst. It's a statement to say, why would you go anywhere else? I'm in the midst of you. It's a statement that you see in other places of Scripture uh, God is with you. And if God is with you, then who can be against you? I'm in your midst, the Holy One of Israel, but yet you go to Egypt for an alliance. 
I'm the Holy One of Israel. It's in your midst, but your father Ahaz, he decided when the Syrians and Ephraim was going to fight against him that he would go to Assyria for help instead of me. I'm in your midst. Why look elsewhere? And this idea of trusting and not being afraid, the language even is similar to go with me to Exodus 15. Exodus 15, and beautiful song, the song of Moses. Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord and said, I will sing to the Lord, verse 1, Exodus 15, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider has been hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him my father's God, and I will extol him. See the language, we see the similarity in language and what's being communicated in Isaiah and what's being communicated in this song of deliverance. And notice as well the parallels. He says what? I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and the rider has been hurled into the sea. This is what happens to the horse and the rider when they are not um, ordained by God. And, of course, we know what is happening here in the Exodus, what has happened. The people of God are leaving. Uh, God says, leave these people. Uh, We know the plagues that have preceded it. And what happens? Pharaoh, in some way, like Shennacherib, in his arrogance, says, no, I will not let the people go. And he chases after the people. And what does God do? We know that story. Since we've been a small child, what happened? The sea closes up. And what happens? They are now to be seen no more. So the mighty chariots of Egypt and the mighty horsemen of Egypt, now they're destroyed. And here we are now, generations and generations later, and unlike this song is communicating that he is my father's God, I will trust him. Unlike this generation, they should have learned this lesson. Why are we going now to Egypt for horses and for chariots? Remember the song of Moses. When God was for us, and we were not even uh, a nation formed yet. Here we were, slave people escaping the most powerful nation at that time. We don't even have an army yet. So why relying on our army now when we didn't even have one then, and God's name was highly exalted, and he stood for us? This makes no sense. But I think we all agree that sometimes how we live our faith doesn't make sense. Because we see God's faithfulness in the midst of God's absolutely pure track record of faithfulness. We make decisions that don't really reflect that. And then we become like the people of God here when they should have said to themselves, wait a minute, horse and rider and chariots? Don't we remember the song of Moses? And when God was for us, what happened to the chariot and their horsemen? They were hurled into the sea. The same should be for us today. But we decided to trust other things. Look at Isaiah 26. Isaiah 26, beautiful. Isaiah 26, 3 and 4. It says here, the steadfast of mind will keep in perfect peace. Isn't that a great verse? And when it says the steadfast of mind, 
that mind that is assured, that mind that is consistent, will keep in perfect peace. Why? What is the condition with it, though? Because he trusts in you. And then in verse 4, trust in the Lord forever. For in God the Lord, we have an everlasting rock. Now, what we need to pay attention to is just that last thought, we have an everlasting rock. And this is a picture of communicating because often in warfare, it was necessary. Uh, One basic thing about warfare is that you want to have the high ground, do you not? I mean, if in warfare, someone can have the high ground, they have an advantage. And if you can have a place that's high ground, and as well, you can build on that high ground a fortress, even a greater advantage. But yet, what's here is that fortresses can be torn down. Remember, um, the Syrian army um, has now come from um, Lake Issues 30 miles away, and that was a fortified city, but yet it was laid waste. And before this, um, Shennacherib had laid waste to 46 other cities, laid waste. So he says here, I'm an everlasting rock. I will not shift. I will not change. Uh, I really got to turn this off when I preach. I don't know what that means. Of course you don't, because I'm preaching the Bible right now. (laughs) And the the people that made it don't understand that. (laughs) Need a biblical Siri. Like he could be saying something and say, amen. I get the point, brother. (laughs) Preach it now. Preach it. Come on, someone, it has to be an app, biblical Siri, right? <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> right? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so this idea, high ground, do we not? Laid waste of 46 cities that come upon Jerusalem, everlasting walk. And what I was about to say is that we as Californians should appreciate stability. What happens in California? What happens to the earth? It does what? It shifts and shakes. And one day, this rock on which we live, the scripture tells us in 2 Peter, it will be burned up, will it not? And it will be rolled out again. He says, I am an everlasting rock. And that was a part of warfare. Get on a place of stability. And what God is saying, that these other places will shift. The Edomites. God speaks against the Edomites, says, look at you. You're hiding yourselves in the cleft of the rocks, but I will bring you down. I will humble you. Don't think just because you're there and that is a superior position that that is going to thwart my plan against you. It will not. So he says, you want to have peace in your mind? You want to have stability in life? Meditate on a God who is a trustworthy God. And so when all of life is like we have experienced here in California, it's shifting and moving, then you can be stable because God does not shift. He does not move. He does not sleep. He does not change. He is an everlasting rock. Trust in him is what's being communicated. There's another example of trust in Isaiah. It's this. We see five instances of trust in Isaiah, then in chapters 40 to 66. And what they're really doing is mirroring what was stated in chapters 1 to 35, but now it picks up in chapters 40 to 66. 
And there's this focus on vain trust as well. Look with me to um, Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42, verse 17. It says... I'm going to start at verse um, 16. I will lead the blind by a way they do not know. In path they do not know, I will guide them. I will make darkness into light before them and rugged places into plains. These are the things I will do, and I will not leave them undone. They will be turned back and be utterly put to shame who trust in idols, who say to molten images, you are our gods. So there's a vanity in trust here. Don't trust in these things that have no power to deliver. But look with me at Isaiah 47. Isaiah 47. Here, the focus is on this sense of the daughter of Babylon who, who securely um, rests in their arrogance in one sense is what's being communicated here. They think that no one sees their wickedness. No one knows what they're doing, but God knows. Isaiah 47, 8 and 10, verse 8 says, Now, then, hear this, you senseless one, who dwells securely, who, say, who says in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. Now, that is an important statement that we're going to develop in a moment because really what is being stated here by these haughty Babylonians, they're making a statement that only God should make, which is prevalent in Isaiah as well. And he says here, I am and there's no one besides me. I will not sit as a widow, nor uh, no loss of children. No, there is no um, damage that's going to come to me. Verse 10. You felt secure in your wickedness and said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge, they have deluded you. For you have said in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. This is such a blasphemous statement. This false security that they have. And you say, why is that? Well, let me show you why. This statement is for God and God only. Look at Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43 and 10. Beautiful. And if you would, you would do well if you were to get a pencil and pen or just a pen, and if you were to start in Isaiah 40 and just read through, especially 40 to 48, and just look for I am, I am, I am, I am he. Look at Isaiah 43, verse 10. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servants whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he before me. There was no God formed, and there will be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. So the Babylonians are becoming um, horribly close to declaring that they are divine. Look with me at chapter 44, verse 8. Do not tremble and do not be afraid. Have I not long ago since announced it to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? Or is there any other rock? I know of none. Look at Isaiah 55. 55 verses 5 and 6. He says, I am the Lord and there is no other besides me. There is no God. I will gird you though you have not known me. 
the men may know from that men may know from rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. We see it also in verse 18, I believe, verse 18 as well. For thus says the Lord God who created the heavens, he is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create it a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is none else. Verse 22, this statement again. Turn to me and be saved. Pause for a moment. Notice again what he's saying. Turn to me, not to Assyria, not to the Egyptians, not to any other alliance, not alliance, not to any other resources, but me, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. An arrogant statement that was being made. Trust, reliance upon, hope. A look to the future. Trust, not military strength. Trust in God and God alone. Trust. Here's a second assault from his speech. Go back to Isaiah 36. Isaiah 36. In verse 5, he makes the statement, Your counsel and strength for war are only empty words. And it really is straightforward. He says, you're all talk, Hezekiah. There's no way that you can stand against me. You speak about rebellion, but you have no strength for rebellion. And on whom do you rely that you have rebelled against me? Who is going to back you up? What nation is going to be your ally that they would actually be viable, is what he said. So we can understand this. Don't trust in an ally who cannot aid you. Don't trust in an ally who can't aid you. Notice what he says in verse 6. Now, here's the truth of his assault. This is something that they should have considered. This is actually good counsel from them. Verse 6, behold, you rely on the staff of this crushed reed, even on Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who rely on on him. And it's stated again in verse eight and nine. Notice, now therefore come and make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria, and I'll give you 2,000 horses if you're able on your part to set riders in them. How then can you repulse one official of the least of my master's servants and rely on Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? What an indictment. But here, as I said, the indictment is actually worth hearing. They should not have relied on Egypt. This Egyptian alliance was condemned by God. The Assyrians see this as a hopeless case, and their position was correct because the Assyrians had already defeated the uprising of the Egyptians. They had already put down uh, its Tarhaka, the king of Egypt. They had already defeated him. So why would you then rest in Egypt? And notice the imagery that it gives. He says, it's like this walking stank, uh, cane, if you will. And you're thinking that somehow in your feebleness, because you're not as strong as you should be, that you're going to take this walking king of Egypt and it's going to hold you up. And you'll be able to walk more sort of normally, if you will. And that's what someone may need at times uh, because of a stage in life. And what is it literally doing? It's saying, it's, it's stabilizing me. 
So you're taking this walking cane of Egypt and you think it's going to stabilize you because you do recognize you're a weak nation and you think that somehow Egypt is going to strengthen you. Well, it's not. Let me tell you what's going to happen. It's a crushed reed because we already crushed it. We put down the uprising. We've already defeated them. And now we're coming to you. And he says, it's like um, a crushed reed. So in the end, what it's going to do is pierce the hand. So we can't imagine like we think about maybe a walking cane, one that's metal or aluminum, or even one that's wood and it's shaped and has a nice curvature and it's been sanded off and varnished. It, imagine people just giving, getting a reed, cutting it um, as they might. And it may be somewhat smooth, but it's saying once it's been beat and battered for a while, what's going to happen? It starts to do what? It starts to splinter. And it's saying it's like a, a reed that's sort of losing its consistency. And now you put your hand on it and it's going to pierce your hand. That's what's going to happen to you. But this was also consistent with what God said. Remember, we already saw in chapter 30, God says, woe to you who go down to Egypt. Why would you go to Egypt for help? It makes no sense whatsoever depend on me god had already look with me at chapter 37 chapter 37 of isaiah i mentioned before that they defeated him notice chapter 37 verse 9 it says then rapture returned and found the king of assyria fighting at libna for he had heard that the king had left lachish and then in verse 9 when he heard them say something to Hakah, the king of Cush, or king of Egypt, he has come out to fight against you. And when he had heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah saying, because he's nothing. This king is a king to be defeated. And God had already pronounced it in chapter 20 that God would send an army, which would be the Assyrians, and they would defeat these Egyptians, why do you rely on them? They can't aid you. Number three is this. Verse seven, go back to chapter 36. Don't trust in a God who cannot maintain you. Don't trust in a God who cannot maintain you. Notice verse seven. Say, what does this mean? But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away? And it said to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar. What do I mean by a God who can't maintain you? Well, in his speech, it's a speech that's first divisive. Why is it divisive? Because what had happened in the land of, of Judah, their altars are to spread throughout the land. God had already said there's one place where you're to come and worship, to worship me here at Jerusalem. And then some of these altars, not only were they Yahwehism, it was they had formed their own way of worshiping Yahweh, but it was also used for pagan worship as well. Now, we know already that Hezekiah had gone through the land. He destroys all these altars and all these high places, and he says, now, here's the only place that you're supposed to worship, which is consistent with Scripture. So why is it divisive? Because maybe some of those people that had come from the outskirts that are now in Jerusalem would have thought, that's right, Hezekiah, you took away our high places. Hezekiah, you took away our altars. Why do we only have to come here to Jerusalem? And maybe he's hoping there would be somewhat of an, up, of an uprising within the walls itself. But it's also a religious um, technique as well. Because the gods of the land, they would have a position that the more altars you had, 
the more powerful your God was, and the more he, was, he saw you as favorable. So look, wait a minute. Your, your God can't even keep his altars up. Your, your God cannot even keep up his places of worship. And as well, most likely then, this Yahweh that you serve is most likely angry with you because you wrecked all of his places of worship. So he's hoping that on one front, maybe people will rise up inside. Or on the other front, he's saying to them, God is angry with you. Look what you've done. What sort of God do you serve? You've broken down all of his altars. He cannot possibly be on your side. And this was just a part of the technique of the land. Notice, if we go to verse 10, the fourth assault. Don't trust in a God who has abandoned you. He's abandoned you. Verse 10. Have I now come up without the Lord's approval against this land to destroy? The Lord said to me, give up, or go up, I'm sorry, against this land and destroy it. And a part of the culture of the day as well was for kings to come and they could justify their action by claiming that the gods of that vanquished land had directed them to conquer that territory. This is true. Say, for instance, Necho, when he claimed he was following God's direction when Josiah interfered with his journey. We see that in 2 Chronicles 35. Cyrus, if you will, in Ezra 1, 1 to 3, which is true in that case because Ezra claimed that God has sent me and allowed me to allow the people to return from exile. That was, in, in that case, true. So it was not unusual for a commander to say, your God has sent me here. That's why you're being defeated. And it was very much a part of the Assyrian mindset to say, look, it's obvious that your gods have abandoned you. Look how many cities you've lost. Look how many lives you've lost. Now, simply surrender so that you lose no more, de- no more blood and no more life and surrender to me. But here's something else that's a possibility. And I think this is sort of in conjunction with culture that most likely, I say likely, that the Assyrians understood some of the preaching of of Isaiah. Go with me to Isaiah chapter 8. So he's using that against them. Isaiah chapter 8, verses 7 and 8. It says, now therefore, behold, the Lord is about to bring on them the strong and abundant waters of the Euphrates, even the king of Assyria in all his glory. And it will rise up over all the channels and go over all the banks. Then it will sweep unto Judah. It will overflow and pass through. It will reach even to the neck and spread its wings. And the spread of its wings will fill the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. Isn't that interesting, O Emmanuel? God is in your midst, and why is that statement then? He says, yes, I'm in your midst, but you have done what? You have denied me. You've rejected me. Look at chapter 10, this pronouncement. And here it's very clear that Assyria is the rod of my anger and the staff in whose hand is my indignation. I send it against a godless nation, that godless nation being Israel, and commission it against the people of my fury to capture booty and to seize plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. 
So most likely they understood some of this preaching and the prophecies through Isaiah, and he's using that against them as psychological warfare to say, yes, God is the one that sent us here. That is true in measure. But it's also true that God says this city will not fall. Imagine it, what they're facing. The odds are absolutely against them. And they're wondering, how can we survive? We've made bad choices. We decided, let's go to horses and chariots from the Egyptians. And God has already said, no, that's not the place to go. Maybe this alliance is going to help us. No, it is with God and God only. A God who is an everlasting rock that doesn't waver even in the midst of great difficulty. So again, we say 3,000 years ago, nearly thousands of miles away, but they're facing some of the same issues we face today. I just saw um, an indicator that one um, presidential candidate was asked a question at a town hall meeting. And, um, and the question was this, essentially, what if there are Christian universities and churches and ministries that stand against the LGBTQ agenda? Should they lose their tax exemption? And the person without hesitation said, yes. Now, do you know what happened? Did people say, oh, no, that's, that's too much, sir. What happened to them? Everyone was clapping. And you saw him sort of look. There was this look on his face like it wasn't a sense of confidence, but it's like he had to say what he said, and maybe that's truly what he believes. But nonetheless, he said it now. And then I just had posted it, and people responded, and I need to, I promised someone I'd go back on Monday maybe and respond to it because I literally said Sunday's coming, and I have more work to do. I can't be Facebooking right now. Um, and so now that this is over, I'm going to go back and respond to a person that said no. Because my point was essentially this. I, I don't understand certain Christians who are church-going Christians, and they would say, uh, be able to, without reservation, vote for someone who's attacking your religious Christian freedoms. And somehow I think some of them are naive to think that somehow it's not going to find its way into my church. Now, I also said this on the other side of the platform, if you will, if you don't have reservations for the other person to whom you have the option to vote, then something's wrong with you as well because there are contradictions there. And then my last statement was the sad state of choices in America. This is where we are. So am I going to put my rest here, my trust here, and thinking that somehow if this person is in office, then everything is going to be well for Christianity? Absolutely not. They're men and men at best. And at times, some that are on the platform, I wonder if they're even men. Because they have no sense of conviction, no moral consistency. And why would I put my trust there? See, there are people around the world right now, they're facing great difficulty and heartache and pain. They're surrounded by the shenanigans of the world, and they're dying for their faith. They're persecuted for their faith. But in the midst of it, they trust the Lord. It's an everyday decision that you have. You wake up every day and you can trust the Lord. 
then others will look at you and say, okay, what's the source and strength of your faith? Trust in God. Why do you make the decisions that you make? I trust in God. That's our strength. There is no other option. There's no other way. There's no other God. Amen? Father, we thank you for your goodness, grace, and mercy. We praise you. In Christ's name, amen.